When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. What's propping up the U.S. consumer? Hi, everyone. Welcome to our Summer Friday edition of The Daily Briefing. With me today is Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro. Hey there, Darius. Hey, Maggie. Happy Friday. How are you? Exactly. Darius and I are both smiling. We were talking about what a hectic week it was for everybody, and we're psyched, psyched that we made it to Friday. Um, so, But on that note, Darius, let's, let's wrap up a little bit because we had a lot of information. We had a lot of things happening, Fed meeting, a lot of economic data, so as we kind of reflect on everything we learned this week, what's your take on what you saw and heard? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, if I could summarize, we can obviously unpack this uh, for, the, for the audience. Um, if you think about kind of what happened with respect to the Fed meeting, uh, we sort of termed it uh, hunting for Bigfoot in terms of the Fed's posture, their shifting reaction function in terms of uh, hoping for a disinflationary self-landing, which, uh, which is a very unlikely uh, probability in the U.S. economy, uh, shifting to the ECB. Uh, hunting for big game. Uh, this is sort of how I would contextualize uh, Madame Lagarde's, uh, you know, very aggressive, very hawkish uh, press conference yesterday. Uh, and then lastly, this morning, um, you know, <laughs> missed the hunting boat, I guess, if you will, in terms of the BLJ uh, and UEDA, or maybe maybe crouching tiger, if you will, uh, you know, kind of sleep, asleep at the hunt. wheel. I don't know, something <laughs> absent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not quite on the hunt yet, but certainly, uh, certainly in the woods and, and, you know, got its fangs out ready. So uh, we can unpack each of those things. But the conclusion from my perspective is we think the move down in the dollar has probably run its course. Maybe has a little bit more um, juice to the downside here, but we ultimately think the dollar is likely to be grinding higher and draining global liquidity in the process. So in the coming months, so uh, it's a lot to unpack. So why is the dollar? Why would the dollar be moving higher, especially when you see a you know different different policy uh, decisions happening this week? What's driving that dollar higher? Yeah, so so it's it really starts with okay, where are we headed? From the perspective of, of okay, the, the the data that are going to drive the central bank's reaction functions, and then more importantly, what's priced in with respect to the, those data. So I'll start with respect to um, U.S. inflation. We got U.S. inflation uh, uh, CPI on Tuesday. Uh, I want to say the kind of the key highlights as it relates to sort of how we think about inflation on a three-month annualized rate of change basis. Uh, we saw a super core CPI that decelerated 100, 100 basis points to 3.1%. So that was very positive. Uh, in support of this sort of hunting for Bigfoot posture out of the Fed. We saw trim mean CPI decelerate uh, 110 basis points to 3.1% uh, 3, 3. as well. So, um, you know, we saw a pretty significant move down in inflation. And that supports, you know, kind of a, what would, that sort of sets us up for one more month of a significant move down in inflation on a year over year basis, which is what most of everyone else's look at. We look at the sequentials to front run the year over years. And the reality is, it's probably going to see a significant drop off next month in June. Uh, with respect to year-over-year uh, -year inflation, you got the base effect on the headline inflation is going to drop off from 1.2% month-over-month to zero, 
you get the base effect of core inflation is going to get cut in half from 0.6% to 0.3%. And so as a function of that, and I think the money markets are already pricing, Brian, if you can throw up slide three uh, that we sent, uh, money markets are sort of already pricing this opportunity, this, this expectation in that the further inflation data are going to cause the Fed to maybe even pause at their July meeting, which, which may be the case. So mm -hmm. in this chart here, I'm showing uh, the blue lines in, this, in these panels. Uh, so let me start by saying this four panels. They represent the, uh, the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of England, and the Bank of Japan. The blue line in the panels represents the terminal policy rate uh, as derived from the overnight index swap market, which are swaps on the um, respective policy rate in the, in the, in the locality. And the Fed and the terminal um, and the terminal floor rate. So the the you know with the lowest um, what the min value is in terms of the two year out OIS curve. And what we're seeing here, if you look at the, the a couple of things interesting things happened this week. So the blue line in the top panel, which is the terminal Fed funds rate, was trapped and unchanged week over week at five point three seven percent, despite the hawkish dot plot revision of five point six two five percent. Number two, we saw the terminal ECB policy rate gallop higher week over week of about fourteen basis points. And then, and the kind of the key takeaway we call out here is that money markets are pricing in twice as much easing by the Fed as they do see out of the ECB over the next two years. Uh, 198 basis points for the Fed, 100 basis points for the ECB. And in our view, that's very unlikely given that a the European recession is is, is already in uh, the European economy is in recession. Uh, two, uh, the European inflation tends to lag U.S. inflation by two quarters which means they're about to head into the most disinflationary part of their um, disinflation process over the next two quarters, kind of starting in the second half of this year. So um, when you kind of put all those things together and tie a bow around that with respect to um, valuations on slide two, Brian, where we show our uh, real interest rate differential model, uh, we see that the dollar is slightly undervalued on a carry basis. Um, mm -hmm. So on the x-axis, we show the year-over-year -year basis point delta in the real one-year real interest rate. And on the y-axis, we show the year-over-year -year percentage change in the nominal effective exchange rate, which is a broad trade weighted basket for the currency. And as you can see, you know, most currencies are generally on the trend line, but the US, you know, with this, you know, with the strongest carry in the world in terms of all these major currencies, um, is you know, certainly much, much below the trend line. And it seems to us that the market has kind of run with this dollar bear uh, narrative, at least in the short term, a little bit too far. You know, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you for clarification because I'm glad I put that out there that it's Friday and it's been a long week because I think my brain <laughs> might be might be slightly lagging, but itself. Um, so you're not because at first yeah, I'm listening to the Fed's hawkish. We're hawkish. This is a skip, and I'm it's a, the most hawkish skip there could be. And li listening to them say that the market disregarded it. The, you know the easing's out, but it still seems like everybody thinks the Fed may just be on hold now or that the rate hikes are done. So I'm thinking, why is the dollar going to strengthen on that? You, if I'm understanding you right, it's less you're looking at maybe they're just overestimating the amount of tightening or rate hikes or hawkishness from the ECB, and that's the side of the equation they have wrong. Is that right, or did I did I go astray? Oh, not, not quite, but it's it's um it's it's along the, the appropriate path. What we're effectively arguing, going back to that slide three where we show the terminal and floor rates and the and the and the, the spreads between them, is that the market is already effectively bought into this story that the Fed is effectively done. Mm. Seeing maybe a half of uh, rate hike priced into the uh, terminal Fed funds rate, whereas the ECBs you saw, you know, see move up substantially and continue to trend higher. Um, you know, we sort of really flatline in terms of terminal policy rate expectations out of the Fed. So the market is not buying the Federal Reserve is going to continue tightening rates, uh, hiking interest rates, um, which we believe is is a very, you know, we, we want to take that option. We want to take that bet um, in terms of, you know, um, wanting faith, that market expectation. And the reason we want to take that bet 
Uh, Brian, if you go uh, chart four, uh, quite a busy chart, but as you know, I can, I'm here to explain them. Uh, so you know, we definitely believe that the, the, the we're setting up to see a series of upside inflation surprises throughout 2023, at least until the market kind of catches up to where we are, where we've been at 42 macro uh, with respect to the U.S. business cycle. Recall that since the fall of last year, we've thought that the U.S. the, the highest probability um, of a recession, the highest quarter with the highest probability with recession uh, for a recession commencing in the U.S. economy was Q4 of this year. And the second highest probability is Q1 of next year. And we have mm. a bunch of business cycle timing models to get us to that view. And so we understand that, hey, consensus is calling for the recession to commence in the third quarter. There, that's <laughs> That used to be the first quarter. That was wrong. It used to be the second quarter. That was wrong. So they're just going to roll it a quarter forward here. But if that's wrong, if that continues to be wrong, what's more than likely to happen is that as we get past those easy base effects in June on inflation and start to get into the July data and beyond, it's very likely that we're going to start to see a firmness of inflation, certainly on a, on a, on a relative basis to consensus, but potentially on an absolute basis as well. So going back to this chart, what I'm showing in this chart across um, you know, kind of these, these five cycles here, we're showing the median trailing 10-year delta adjusted Z-score of a basket of indicators that represent these uh, particular cycles in the economy. And it, and it's sort of benchmark to when, you know, the number of months before and after when the recession starts. So there's housing, there's about 12 indicators in there. Orders is about uh, 12 indicators in there. Production profits, I think there's five indicators in there. Employment, I think there's 10 indicators in there. And inflation, about six or seven indicators. And again, we're showing the median trailing 10-year delta adjusted Z-score. And so the X's on these lines indicate when on, a, on balance, the compendium of indicators in, in each of these um, buckets breaks down below trend sustainably ahead of recession. And housing, as you can see, breaks down on, on balance around 18 months ahead of the recession. Orders takes down about, you know, kind of 10 months ahead of recession. Production and profits kind of break down around six months ahead of recession. Employment tends to break down right as the recession is starting. And inflation being the most lagging indicator of the U.S. business cycle tends to break down kind of six to eight months after the recession starts. So we've already had a lot of transitory disinflation going back to, you know, some of the inflation that we saw last year was indeed transitory. But we're going to get to the part of the, the, the movie where you're just not going to get significantly more positive inflation outcomes without having a significant uh, drawdown in, in an overall labor market and, and, a, and an increase in slack uh, in the labor market. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So that, yeah, that's interesting. And this is where, um, for those of you who remember the conversation you had with Rao, where you and Rao dif have differences in terms of the timing of, of that recession. So do you think the Fed is going to resume? Do you think that we have more rate hikes coming from the Fed? Yes, absolutely. In our view, yeah, without question. It may not be in July, because again, the, the June data point we're going to get is going to be pretty dovish. It's already kind of priced into the market, so it's unlikely mm -hmm. to surprise markets if the Fed does not hike in July. But certainly by their September meeting, and again, perhaps in their October, November meetings, uh, they're they're tightening policy further. Uh, so interesting. So, and yet you certainly don't see that in the market right now. Yeah. Uh, before we get to sort of where we, where things may be mispriced with the market, because I mean, it was incredible. Incredible. They the the Fed took such pains to deliver that message. Stocks <laughs> rallied right through. We saw we just saw the market kind of just not believe them through because of some of the language. Uh, when we're talking about recession, though. We saw University of Michigan mm -hmm. consumer sentiment rise to a four-month high today. Um, 
that is interesting and kind of feeding into that conversation about the economy being stronger. What's propping up the consumer? We started the show with that. Where's that coming from? Why is sentiment holding up? So there's a variety of things that are propping up the consumer, but specifically as it relates to the today's University of Michigan consumer confidence data, we saw almost 100 basis point deceleration in the one year forward inflation expectation. And that that survey um, um, tends to be much more anchored on inflation dynamics relative to the conference board survey, which is much more uh, anchored on labor market dynamics. With respect to labor market dynamics, that's also one of the things that's been holding up and propping up consumer uh, consumer spending, um, which again, this is something we've We've been talking about 42 mega research since July of last year in terms of the booming uh, U.S. labor market, and it's obviously continued here um, throughout um, throughout throughout 2023. So that's one factor that's been supportive of, of the consumer in the broader uh, U.S. business cycle. Another factor that's been supportive is the amount of cash that we continue to see on household and corporate uh, balance sheets. Everyone talks about this kind of wonky concept of excess savings, but nobody tells you where it's excess above or below because no one's actually doing the math and the, and the research on this stuff. They just kind of pair it other people's sayings. So we do the math and the research on this stuff. And, you know, in terms of the total amount of cash on household balance sheets and corporate balance sheets, we're about 3% of total assets. We have to go all the way back to the late 1960s to see that high of a ratio of cash on, on, on consumer and corporate balance sheets, respectively. Um, so that's one factor. Uh, manufacturing as a share of the economy has declined significantly. It's only about 14% of GDP. It's only about 18, or sorry, 18% of GDP, 14% of the labor force. Manufacturing on balance, if you look at the 12 post-war recessions uh, that we have, you know, labor market data for, manufacturing on, on net tends to account for 98% of the net job loss in, in the recessions on a median basis across those 12 recessions. So the more volatile sector of the economy is just smaller. So we got to do more damage to it to actually have a recession spill over into the services sector. And then one final thing, um, you know, Chair Powell talked about this on Wednesday, which is like housing is just not as housing is proving to be quite resilient relative yeah. to the interest rate shock that we were experiencing. And part of the reason for that is because of the interest rate shocks. Ironically, you 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 took interest rates on, in terms of the marginal mortgage rate for anyone in the market to buy a home from effectively zero to seven percent, but you didn't take the effective mortgage rate across all the mortgage debt outstanding to seven percent. It's still down around three and a half percent. And so what's happened is there's a complete stasis in existing home sales because no one is going to trade their 3.5% mortgage for a 7% mortgage. And so that's ironically put a lot of upward pressure on the demand for new homes, which is why the housing market is really um, you know, kind of not tanking the way it would have historically uh, tanked it in recent cycles. That'll end once the labor market starts to you know, deteriorate a little bit. But again, we've been very consistent on this for you know, three, three quarters now. A recession at, at earliest is Q4 of this year. And second highest probability is Q1 of next year. That's a lot of time and space for bears to continue getting squeezed between now and then. That is a great point about housing, Darius, because, and, and the U.S. is sort of known for mobility. That was that was one of the features of the economy, both labor and people are willing for that reason to sell their house. But you're right, no one is budging out of that three year, that 3%, whatever it is, low interest rate that they had. So that's very interesting that it would be putting that pressure on, on new homes and just hurting supply. We talk about demographics, but not a lot of people talk about that mortgage aspect of that. So the longer we push out the recession, uh, does it just delay it or does it increase the risk that it's more severe for some reason? So I, I do I do want to clarify, we are not pushing out the recession. We've always been in that camp. The right, yes. The consensus is forced right. to kick the can down for, the road on the recession. For consensus, right, you're right. For, yeah, cons- yeah. for so, those sorry. who were expecting it to be sooner. Um, I can't remember who said this. Um, 
it was not, I don't know if it was Druckenmiller or Gunlock, someone who was some sort of, you know, person uh, of that nature that was talking expressed some concern that if we kept going, if there was strength that exceeded the, the consensus or the, you know, those who were looking for it, that it would just mean it would be harsher when it came. Do you see it that way or is it just going to be what it is? No, it's just going to be what it is. There's no historical evidence that like this consensus being surprised about a recession means it's going to be uh, harsher. What makes a recession uh, uh, tough in magnitude or, or you know, kind of um, uh, more less than shallow or less than mild is obviously the amount of tightening that we see. That's why the, I think they worried about that. Um, now that I'm thinking about it, I think it's because they thought if it seems strong, prompt the Fed to keep going, increasing the risk that they pile on maybe in a way that Perhaps, but the, the the key takeaway that's sort of not missed that's missed in that view is that clearly if the Fed has to keep going, then they weren't at restrictive territory, right? right? It's only what happens after you get to restrictive territory and or how long you remain in restrictive territory that really has an impact on the actual business cycle. So you know this you know we've had we said in August of last year, I think I said it on this show, you know the number one thing we're going to be talking about next year is what's the actual level of the the neutral Fed funds rate. It's probably gone up. It's probably gone up a lot deciding that uh, cash analysis that we just uh, highlighted, mm. in terms of, um, you know, tons of cash on corporate and, and uh, consumer balance sheets. Yeah, that's a great question. What's a neutral Fed fund rate? I think we're going to, that's something that we're going to be chewing over a lot over the summer. Very mm. interesting question from Joel that I think uh, I'll bring up here. Um, this year, the Fed changed inflation measuring, now looking just one year back instead of two. Thinking of last year's spike, how much does that new measurement impact the current number? Does it make it look better than it is? Uh, ironically, it's actually making it look worse because, again, we we said we sent a little um, shift to uh, back to services, and so you know, we're obviously consuming a lot more services, a lot more services demand in the economy currently relative to where we are in this kind of post-pandemic cycle. So it's not necessarily making things better or worse. I wouldn't focus on that. I would just focus on the actual deltas of the data, and the deltas of the data have been, you know, we've gotten a lot of positive outcomes on the inflation front that historically very not, they typically do not happen this, this uh, you know, this far ahead of a, a recession commencing. And so what it's telling you is that, you know, some part of the Fed, that 9% CPI number we had last year, some significant chunk of that was in fact transitory, you know, as a function of the pandemic, et cetera. But there's also some significant chunk of that that is very not transitory. We continue to see the employment continent index, the most recent prints compounding at nearly 5% quarter over quarter annualized, you know, we continue to see, obviously, the cash that's sitting in the economy. And where does this all come from? Well, we know that we had bipartisan support to inflate the fiscal, uh, the, the, the federal balance sheet. You know, we grew uh, public debt by $6.4 trillion in the two years ended 2021. Two sets of White House, two sets of Congresses. And guess how much of that $6.4 trillion of debt the Fed monetized on its balance sheet with outright Treasury securities purchases? $3.3 trillion, almost 52%. So clearly there's going to be some residual impact on that for years to come in terms of you know, resetting that amount of cash uh, that's just sloshing around the US economy higher. And this is why we're having an inflation episode. This is why we're gonna to continue to see you know, sticky structural core inflation and the Fed's gonna find it very hard to go from four to two. Getting from nine to four was pretty easy because there's a lot of transitory inflation. Going mm -hmm. from four to two, that's gonna take quite a while. And the Fed acknowledged that in terms of punting out um, you know, basically punting on their uh, inflation projections uh, into next year. Yeah. Um, Christopher reminded me, it was Miller that that said that, um, along with others who've been on our, our platform, sort of worried about, you know, um, essentially the Fed, you know, keeping their foot on the uh, hiking, slamming the brake more than they perhaps needed to as this plays out. Mm -hmm. um, 
And Jordan responding, my mortgage was the best hedge I've ever made. LOL. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people feel like that. Totally, Jordan, yeah. A lot of people are hoping to get back to that kind of time, but you know, not clear, not clear if we're going to, we're going to get there. Um, another interesting comment. I love how you guys are rolling up here on a Friday. Well done. We got some brain power going here. I love it. Uh, compensating for perhaps my lack of <laughs> um, renewable energy yeah. investments, asking or, or commenting kind of both. Have we not been in a purchasing power recession for the past two years? Is there no chance that the answer to an employee shortage and housing shortage is not mass unemployment and a housing crash? Say that again. The answer to it. Yeah. So so he's saying we've been in a purchasing power recession. Basically, aren't we going to see is the answer is the way to solve the employee shortage and housing shortage basically going to resolve itself through mass unemployment and a housing crash? Is that how? So that's that's I would disagree with the characterization. We have not been in a purchasing power recession. In fact, real disposable personal income is actually accelerating uh, in recent months. Um, if you look at it on an annualized basis, I mean, we've, we're up about you know 1.7% in the most recent month. And that's, you know, that's pretty close to an 18-month high or something like that. And so, you know, it, as a function of the disinflation process, we are seeing an improvement in real incomes. Well, as a function of the growth in the labor market in terms of jobs, we are seeing more people employed. And obviously, again, citing that cash analysis that we did um, in terms of uh, household savings and corporate savings, again, there's just a lot of money out there supporting consumption. So it's coming from a variety of factors. You know, I wouldn't get too bearish on the consumer here. You don't need to, in terms of focusing on the consumer, it's when jobless claims start to rise. Going back to that chart, throw that chart up again, Brian, uh, in terms of chart four, where we show uh, our hope uh, plus I framework. And again, shout out to Mike Kantrowitz for giving me the idea to uh, do this analysis. Uh, I think he was the originator of this kind of framework of thinking about the business cycle. Um, and But in, in terms of this, the reason it's, 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 there's a logical progression to this. The most interest rate sensitive sectors of the, the economy go, you know, break down first. Then we stop ordering all the things that support the interest rate sensitive sectors. Then all the companies that support all those things start to break down in terms of their profits. They stop producing as much. And then eventually their, their profits are at a level that force them to kind of right size their business with employment layoffs. Well, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a natural sequence and a, and a very, you know, kind of beautiful process that the business cycle, you know, is. And ultimately we're, you don't have to worry about the consumer until we get into the part where you're seeing real layoffs. You actually don't even have to worry about the stock market. You know, we actually, um, so we have this concept called phase two credit cycle downturn. You know, when you're in these kind of multi-year bear markets, which I believe we're still technically in, because again, the, we believe the recession is still ahead of us. And every recession, if you go back and you look at them all the way back to the act one of the Great Depression, they always have a market crash associated with the recession. We call that market crash the phase two credit cycle downturn because it's usually pricing in the credit cycle. And that markets tend to peak on a median basis right around one month ahead of the trough in the unemployment rate which is, is another way to say it. it's kind of coincident when you start to see degradation in the employment in the labor market, you know, and you start to see degradation in the stock market. So this sort of belies our call that we think the market probably has legs through year in, perhaps. Um, I, I still believe that we're going to correct this summer as liquidity cycle kind of adjusts downward in a negative manner. But that doesn't necessarily mean this is the one that everyone's kind of posi- should be positioning for to kind of you know press the new lows of the S and P or this or that. Because I think what's more likely to happen, and if we do correct this summer is a lot of bears are going to pile into the trade. They can make, you know, shorting the top of the NASDAQ or whatever. And ultimately, they're going to get squeezed to the high heavens uh, by the end of the year, in my opinion. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. 
So, so let's talk about stocks a little bit. So you, you, and, and I, and again, going back, you, you were talking about this going into this period where you were going to get some positive flow, but boy, we saw, especially through the fed, uh, you know, through the fed commentary stocks, just flying. I mean, if, uh, you look at some of the stats, uh, S&P up 3% this week. I think it's its best since March. 26% off the low. NASDAQ up 4% this week. A lot of people are worrying, is it just getting there too fast? Like, is this just too fast and too narrow? What is your sense? Since the Fed may still be in play, um, even if it's a little bit, even if it's not in July, are, are, are stocks just ignoring too much here? No, no. So stocks are pricing in a very important behavior dynamic that, you know, I can certainly feel and sense and, and have discussions about with our institutional clients. If you are a money manager, particularly a long only money manager, you know, that, that you know, benchmark to anything that has these types of companies in it, you know, the, in the large mega cap tech companies in it, you are severely underperforming year to date. Almost by definition, it's not even by choice. It's just by almost by definition, because the, in the, the returns have been so concentrated. So what's happening is actually you're seeing a lot of fund managers actually YOLO calls in the same way that you know investors YOLO calls in GameStop and AMC back in early 2021. And what they're, what's effectively happened in the markets this week and really throughout the month of uh, May and into June here is that you know kind of gamma squeeze to the upside where dealers are being forced to chase with hedges to the upside as investors are kind of you know investors who are underweight the market and also not positioned to the same degree in the things that the only things that are working. Are really finding their, um, you know, their only kind of <laughs> the only way to get involved is kind of to YOLO calls. And so, one thing I'd say on that is that you know this is OpEx today. It's a pretty chunky OpEx. Um, Brink Kachub over at Spot Gamma called it out that this is a very call-heavy OpEx. And historically speaking, when you're in a put-heavy OpEx and the market's correcting, that removal of the deal hedging process tends to make mark the low in the market. So the reverse is likely to be true here. So. I would not be, you know, too excited to chase stocks here. You got overbought signals and things like the Nasdaq, mega cap growth tech. We had a bearish crowding signal on tech uh, this week. We had a bearish crowding signal on the queues today, this morning, irrespective of the OPEX uh, call um, in terms of our crowding model. So this is not a great spot to be putting on risk. If we do correct over the next few, you know, couple of months, if you know, who knows how long it will last. Um, I think this will be. Um, I think we'll know why, and the reason we'll know why is because. The markets are forward-looking a little bit, and they've already priced in the dovish Fed for next next July for mm -hmm. the July. They're going to start yeah. to look ahead into uh, into the September Fed and realize that hey, look, this Fed ain't done. Inflation is probably going to be stickier than we're hoping it to be. Yeah, you just you just gave voice to a, a lot of what's been coming up. So Andreas uh, sat down with Jonathan Cohen to talk about uh, AI and robotics investing, and Jonathan expressed concern also about the reach for anything AI related. Let's have a listen to a clip from that. How do you view diversification within AI as an investment theme? Sure. Uh, so I, th I think it, it, it makes sense to have some diversification, but mm. what matters the most is, is to invest with conviction uh, mm. so that when you have corrections, you feel comfortable enough to increase the position or at least to hold it. Um, on, I think the diversification is probably one of the reasons why you see some bubbles in AI. You have probably people diversifying away via an, in, an index, an ETF, or, or just by Googling uh, or searching uh, stocks with AI in the description on, on, on buying them at valuations that have no sense uh, based on their technology on, on gross potential. 
That's just a little snippet from Buy Side Meet Sell Side, which airs on Plus. So if you're not an RV member or a Plus member, scan the QR code and join. Um, is, is, the, is this sort of also this sort of enthusiasm and people trying to segment out like what is real with the AI narrative? We've been talking about this for two weeks, but is that kind of contributing to what we're seeing happening? In fact, we have a question. Can it broaden out? Can the rally broaden out? I think uh, Burns is asking that. It's unlikely to broaden out in a material way on a trending basis. It could obviously broaden out. And it will, you know, it, it, like if we rallied into year end, it's probably not going to be a very broad rally because again, you roll this clock forward six months in time, we're probably going to be on the right, on the doorstep of a recession, if not, you know, slightly already entering one. Who knows? Um, you know, I, I think in Q4, Q1, that's kind of our modal expectation. So I- expecting a rally to materially broaden out with that on the rise, and it's usually, it's, 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 it tends not to be, um, it's not a high probability outcome. Um, if you're going to participate in this market, here's how I would do it. Definitely don't buy it today. I would wait for a correction. A lot of signals have lined up um, in certain support of a correction. Our friends over at Longbow, uh, they have this doomsday uh, dozen meter uh, with a bunch of different indicators that, um, you know, quantitative indicators that they put in there. And it's like max, you know, greed, max complacency on top of the, the the overbought signal, the NASDAQ, on top of our crowding, a bearish crowding signal today in the queues, this is not a good spot to be taking risks. But if the market's down, I don't know, eight to 10% sometime mm. this summer, I would probably be buying that dip because again, the, in, in the institutional investor community is under hedged for right to tell risk. Risk works in both directions, particularly when you're an uh, invest, uh, professional investor, these are the kinds of, you know, going back to the buy side meets the sell side, I've done that like 4,500 times in my career. And that's what I do for a living. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. These folks are underinvested and underallocated to a market that's just that's leaving them behind. And it's a real performance chase. It's behavioral. It has nothing to do with the fundamentals or whether or not these AI names are sustainable or paying 40 times revenue for a company is going to be a good or bad idea. It's just what do they need to do to, you know, make, to, sit in the, to maintain the seats that they're sitting in? Yeah, that's fantastic. So time frame matters with that. And so does your risk. Uh, your risk appetite and your ability to withstand because you have to be nimble if it's being driven by that kind of behavioral because you're going to have to see the turn um, when it comes. Uh, Question from George as we start to get close to the end. Is the TGA build still an issue going forward? Yes, it's an issue, but it's uh, being dramatically offset by a significant decline in the RP. So we've seen the reverse repo facility balance decline more than the TGA balance has increased. And as a a function of Yellen thoughtfully flooding the market with very short-term T-bills that are causing the, the yield on, um, on, 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 T- on those securities to be significantly higher than the reverse repo rate. And not to mention, you also have money market funds who are, some of them are probably starting to believe that this is the end of the Fed tightening cycle. Obviously, we talked about how uh, the terminal Fed funds rate didn't budge at all this week. And so if you believe that, hey, this is the end of the tightening cycle, not saying all money market funds believe that, but if you do believe that, and you're now starting to see an attractive yield on a differential basis in terms of the carry, then it, it does make a lot of sense to flood out of, uh, out of the RP and sup up some of those T-bills. And so that's what's happening right now. And that's been supported by the market. How sustainable that is depends on how much, how much more you know, T-bills is Yellen going to flood the market with. She always said that, hey, we're going to flood the market in June with T-bills. The problem as it relates to you know, the return of Uncle Sam to international capital markets isn't this T- TGA thing. That's been Everyone's been so myopically focused on that since we told them to focus on that three months ago. (laughs) But what you should be focused on that going forward is the return of net coupon issuance. Because again, we are running a record non-war, non-pandemic budget deficit here in the U.S. economy. 
non-war, non-pandemic, non-recession, U.S. budget deficit in the economy. It's minus 8% of GDP. We're talking about as much fiscal largesse as we saw at the height of the GFC. Right yeah. now, on the booming economy, fully employed economy. And so as a function of that, there's going to be just a ton of issuance, both bill and coupon. And it's the coupon that matters because, again, the Fed did not stop quantitative tightening. And quantitative tightening has not been draining bank reserves since January. It will start to drain bank reserves again this summer. Yeah. Great stuff. So we're gonna have to we're gonna have to stay on that. Um, closing comment from uh, Lena. It's a tough market. Yes, it is. Uh, and she said the trade that gave me some upside was Raul's Tesla suggestion two weeks ago. Um, nice. Yes, that that's been yeah exactly. So good for you, Lena, for jumping on that. Uh, that's it from us. We had a question at the beginning before we even came on air, Darius, um, from Colin saying what was each of our favorite summer Friday drink to get the weekend started. Uh, I only have one summer Friday drink. I was, uh, I've long been sponsored by Whispering Angel. Uh, they were to say, not to hijack the program, but at multiple points in my life. So back when I used to do Sidebar Sunday, um, I was, I was the, their biggest customer and they were Bud Light's biggest customer in the world, which means I was probably Bud Light's biggest customer. So that's back in like 2015 and like 2017. And then um, when I was going to the Hamptons, it's probably 2015 through like 2022, I would, we would always buy cases of rosé every week. I'd buy a case of Whispering Angel every single week. I'm like, no one else drinks this stuff. I drink the stuff like Kool-Aid. So, you know, I, I, you could <laughs> well, say I got people have jumped on and joined you. Okay, so we, we got Darius' <laughs> answer forever. My answer was that uh, Raul has dragged me over to the Kava side. No and way. I found it fabulous. He had it with you last time. And I was like, yeah. damn, that looks good. So I went out and got myself a rosé cava, but I finished it. So I don't have one. So now I am doing, do not laugh at me, people. Fresca makes a mix. I don't like these seltzers at all, but I'm an old school Fresca drinker before there's any <laughs> alcohol in it. And someone just sent this to me, uh, a picture of it. I am not sponsored by Fresca. They sent me a picture from the liquor store. I was like, oh my God, look what I found. So I bought them and they're good. I and they're low calorie and ABV. It. So it's a good, it's good that. I do like pressure too. Oh, there's a mixed pack. Dara's highly recommend it. It may pull you temporarily off your off your rose wagon. We'll see. We'll report back everyone, but don't buy them out if you live by me, because I'll be mad if I can't find them. So don't tell anyone else. Uh, listen, everyone, thanks for joining us. It's an extended weekend here in the US for a lot of people. So enjoy for all the dads out there. Happy Father's Day. And we will see you back here on Tuesday. No daily briefing Monday because of the federal holiday. We'll see you back here on Tuesday. Everybody take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 